It's a brand new day, and we're putting the AM in American politics. We've seen the darkness of division and despair and are now jumping into the light of a bright path forward. Progress is here, and we're sharing its story with you, for you, all with the help of Signal Boost. Now, here are your hosts, Zerlina Maxwell and Jess McIntosh. Welcome to Signal Boost. This is Jess McIntosh. I'm here with Zerlina Maxwell, and we are joined right now by Dr. Moya Bailey. She has a new book. It is called Misogynoir Transformed. Black Women's Digital Resistance. Dr. Bailey, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Good morning. It's a pleasure How to are be you here. Doing? How are you doing I'm this good. morning? I'm doing author well. Of, author of Massage Noir Transformed, which is very on brand <laughs> for this morning show, I should say. Um, <laughs> uh, you're an assistant professor in the We Department didn't mean to do a lead into this segment, but I guess we did. <laughs> No, no, I, I, I like I like to read um read out things so people have context. Assistant Professor of Department of Culture, Societies and Global Studies and the program in women's gender and sexuality studies at Northeastern. Um and so that is exactly the kind of person <laughs> that we would love to talk to. So we're so happy to have you this morning. Nope. <laughs> um my first question, um, I think let's start with the basics. Um massage okay. noir which is mm -hmm. a word that people probably have seen maybe hashtagged or maybe they saw it on Instagram because um, people are using Instagram now to educate on a lot of these different terms. But can we just start with the basic definition for, for the yeah. uninitiated? Yes. Misogynoir describes the anti-black racist misogyny that black women experience and people read as black women. And it's a term I coined while writing my dissertation in 2008, and then it got popularized uh, and theorized further uh, by Trudy of Gradient Layer Online. So it's a word that's been in circulation for uh, just over 10 years, and I think that people have really resonated with the unique antipathy that Black women experience in our visual and digital media. I think I shorthand this, Jess, and you know this. Let's talk. I sh I, I shorthand this yeah. um, in a sort of joke. Um, I say, I'm not sure if you're be you're treating me this way because I'm black or I'm a woman or both, <laughs> or if you're just a jerk. I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> but I, but that's my shorthand for massage noir, which is to sort of identify the way in which I feel I'm being treated worse or differently um than someone who's not a black woman um and and you know when you're living your life i don't know if you are just a jerk or you could be both <laughs> you could be all of the things too i suppose um but it's that kind of unique way in which black women are dehumanized um and and treated as inferior just in every every single way as we move throughout the world is that is that sort of a is my joke, does it work, <laughs> based on your definition? <laughs> your, your joke does work. And I would add to your joke and say that it's not just a, a sum or an additive property. I actually have talked about massage noir as sickly synergistic because the a level of violence mm -hmm. and the level of um, negative energy isn't just like add um, – 
anti-black racism and misogyny together. It's what happens when those things come together, um, and it actually makes it even more powerful uh, in terms of its impact and its effect on black women. And I've been thinking about this a lot in terms of some current uh, stories, you know, what happened with Meghan Markle and uh, kind of her dealing with the British press. And then now we can think about Naomi and how this is also affecting, you know, black women's ability to do their jobs, essentially, because um, misogynoir is creating such a toxic environment uh, that she would rather pull out of the French Open than have to deal with um, just what the press is doing to her uh, every day. Oh, I'm so glad you used that example. <laughs> um, because the... it's new, it's current, and I think yes. people are like, what? That's misogynoir? How? And I think my first answer would be, well, she was talking about her mental health. She put up a boundary. And not just the French Open, but Wimbledon, all of the major tournaments, people from all of the major tournaments signed a letter basically condemning her for not being willing to participate just like all of the other tennis players. Like, they they publicly condemned her. And they could have just fined her the money. She can afford it because she's a rich number two seed in mm-hmm. the world. <laughs> um, but instead, they felt the need to sort of um, Jamel Hill, the sports writer and podcast host, put it this way. They, they had to put her in her place. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, of course, these are, this is what's happening to black women who have the resources, have a lot of um, societal privilege. So I really want us to think through what is happening to black women who don't have uh, that level of visibility and privilege that the misogynoir that they're experiencing is even worse, you know, for if we're thinking about um, just what happened to the young woman or the young girl, actually, Micaiah Bryant, for thinking about um, Breonna Taylor before her. These are examples of black women not being able to survive because uh, there's an assumption about who they are because they are black women, and that leads to opportunities where their lives are not valued and the extrajudicial killing of of them and the people that are close to them uh, just becomes another news story. And people aren't actually dealing with the fact that there's a disproportionate amount of violence that they're facing. I wanted to ask about the the digital culture that you talk about in your book and the way that black women are especially gender queer black women and queer black women are upending the misogynoir that they experience in digital spaces. Can can you describe that resistance for people and what it looks like? Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that really sparked my interest in this book and in this topic was the kinds of digital resistance that I saw primarily queer and trans Black women doing and um, Black women, um, Black people who are outside the confines of what we imagine as cis Black women. So I'm thinking also about agender, genderqueer, uh, non-binary Black folks who sometimes get read 
as black women because they the society that is looking at them can't even recognize or see see their gender representation. And one place where people have been able to resist some of these limiting tropes about who they are has been in digital places where they create what it is they want to see. So I look at um, hashtags that are created, particularly Janet Mott's hashtag Girls Like Us, for and by trans women. I also look at some web series by black queer women. And then some of the Tumblr curation that was popular, you know, just a few years ago, uh, that non-binary black femmes are creating. And in these contexts, people are challenging some of these mainstream representations of black women through creating what it is that they want to see and having the conversations that mainstream media just doesn't allow to be possible. And so I see misogynoir really transformed through the work that people are doing uh, to create what it is that they want to see themselves. In a lot of ways, I feel like this conversation... I wanted to ask about... Oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead, Z. Sorry. Nope, go ahead. I asked three questions in a oh, row. No, I, I was... never do that. All right. <laughs> you know Never. what every now and then an interview uh an interview corresponds more to one of us than the other no it's true <laughs> and it's in, true. in this happens. one i am fully happy to take <laughs> to take a back seat on this i'm just fascinated by the by like the specifics of the digital revolution because i think that a lot of people who are listening to this probably don't they don't live on on social media the way that that a lot of us do and especially younger people do so i i think there's a, a disconnect where people think that what happens online doesn't really have an effect on real life. So I wanted to ask you about a specific example that you cite in your book where, a, a, you know, white supremacist trolls basically decided to target the mental health of black women with the hashtag ruin a black girls Monday. Can you talk about how like some like what how does that work? Like, how are we talking about about people actually deciding to screw with people online because of the color of their skin and the gender that they were born in? Um, can you can you explain that for folks who might be hearing that and going, no, 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 no. people aren't really that awful on Twitter, are they? <laughs> yes, people really are that awful <laughs> online, unfortunately. Um, so yes, Ruin uh, Black Girls Monday was a hashtag that trended um, sort of in the early days of Twitter actually paying attention to tr to trending. You know, it's because Twitter's been with us for so long, kind of misremember how certain aspects of our daily Twitter life get instantiated. So this is when people started to pay attention to trending, and for a day, um, the hashtag Ruin a Black Girls Monday was trending, and the idea was to post uh, images of white women, of non-black women who had nice, nice figures. Um, the assumption being, or the implicit uh, backstory being that um, what is valuable about black women is their bodies, but those bodies are even more attractive and beautiful if they aren't associated with black women's features or faces or skin tones. So uh, it was really uh, a sort of ridiculous um, assertion to begin with. And then black women really challenged it by saying, 
okay. Like I'm supposed to be upset because, you know, you're, you've posted a picture of a white girl with, you know, a nice butt and that's supposed to ruin my Monday. So there were ways that black women responded to this and really rejected even the premise that that was supposed to upset them. But I think it connects to another practice, which is uh, a practice of people creating representations of themselves pretending to be black women and um, using this digital blackface to try and stoke um, anti-black sentiment, um, anti-black women sentiment, and black women, again, have been really successful in challenging uh, those kinds of representations. So there was another campaign, uh, a Trojan horse campaign by people on the white right wing called um, In Father's Day. And it was this idea that feminists were supporting this assertion right. that we should end Father's Day. And, of course, no feminists were arguing that, but they used... Uh, avatars of black women to pretend to advocate for this position. And of course, black women looked around and said, actually, none of us believe this. This isn't us. And so started the hashtag, uh, your slip is showing, calling out all of these people who were pretending to be black women and saying, actually, no, we see you and we won't accept this negative representation and this assertion about feminism that doesn't actually align with our values or beliefs. It's really weird what people spend their time doing. Um, <laughs> and uh, you know what I mean? Like, spend right, it's, their time it's just on. Those, yes. right. It's like, no, I, I mean, like it, it's, we go, we talk about this all the time with sort of the, the framing of like own the libs, like people that wake up and they're like, I want to ruin a black girl's Monday. Like, why would you want to do that? Um, and then I, I, I love the point that you made, and I want to sort of dial in on it because I brought it up before, um, but you're the perfect person to really unpack it, um, which is the idea that bodies that are not black, um, that have some characteristics of tradition, you know, that you traditionally associate with black women um, and and those women being praised and put on a pedestal for those qualities um, and what I'm what I'm talking about, I'm talking about the Kardashians, like the Kardashian effect happening in this moment. Can you speak mm -hmm. to uh, <laughs> yeah. the idea that the Kardashians who identify as white, present as white um, and our culture accepts them as white um, are profiting and, you know, essentially being promoted um, as as the beauty ideal, um, but you know what what they're actually known for is those physical characteristics traditionally associated with black women, except they're they happen to not be black. Yeah, I mean, I think you laid it all out. Honestly, I mean, the fact that they are able to profit and not just profit, but like start and maintain and. Uh, build an empire around their ability to market what we, again, associate or understand as black features to a non-black audience really, really embodies the way that um, anti-black 
racist misogyny or misogynoir operates in our society because there's a way that, again, those features when not associated with black women are profitable and desirable and that actual black women are often punished or uh, seen in a negative light for having those same features is really a problem. And this is something that we see with um, young black girls who are adultified because of their bodies and this assumption that, oh, you have a body that we think of as very mature and then that actually invites violence into their life because people assume and then treat them as if they are older than they are. And one of the things I talk about in the book is this adultification bias that happens to black girls where they are considered older than they are because people read their bodies as representative of um, womanhood when that isn't necessarily the case. And then black girls are also then hypersexualized as a result. So having these bodies that we associate with um, adult women and then black girls then being treated as adult women when they are not. We've seen that over and over mm-hmm. again, even with the, the most recent killing of the, the teen um, who, you know, we, we, we heard those sorts of things said out loud when I think they are usually just implied that her weight somehow made the police think that she was older than she was. When it's so obvious you're looking at, at two very young women when you watch that videotape, it is so obvious. And anybody who sees something else like, how do you handle the information diet that causes people to see things that way? It's because they it's because it's the water that we swim in. Like, who has the responsibility to change these images? It can't all be on these brave black women, digital alchemists who are able to, to spin this utter crap into into a space where they can tell the story of themselves. Like, do platforms have a role like who? Is there a regulatory body that we can call on? Like, how, how do we how do we help the water that people like grow up in from being so racist with all the imagery that they see? Yes. And I think even before the platform, we have to think about how the people are educated to produce and create the platform. Uh, this is something that I've been thinking about a lot. What's happening in um computer science classes, what's happening at the level of computer engineering, what kinds of courses are people taking who then go on to build the platforms that we use every day. And unfortunately, they're not taking, uh, you know, critical race theory courses. They're not in women's studies classes. They're not getting access to this information. So, of course, we're seeing the ripple effect of these uh, these folks creating platforms that actually don't serve, don't serve us well. And unfortunately, I think we have a mentality in this country that we can just uh, sort of piecemeal and and use band-aids to correct these issues. But I would say that this is one of the hallmarks of systemic oppression is that it's going to take more than a diversity and equity audit on the part of Facebook to fix some of these things that are really endemic and deep 
deep-seated. So how are we really thinking about who we're educating to become the next designers of platforms? How are they getting this information in their curriculum, in their courses, before they go on to be designers uh, of the platforms that people use and are integrated into our day-to-day lives? It's so important to understand all of that. I mean, but then when you think about how Facebook was Mm -hmm. created, (laughs) I guess it's not that hard to see that, you know, I mean, Mark Zuckerberg is not exactly representative. He created it in a dorm room at Harvard University. (laughs) Right? I mean, yeah, like, I feel like the premise, the location, I mean, there there were so many factors. To to rate women's appearances. In a dorm room at Harvard University, he came up with that idea, right? (laughs) That's a very specific environment as well and culture that, you know, is is the lens that he's seeing the world. I want to actually ask um, about Massage Noir and Kamala Harris um, because I think it's another space in which we have a woman um, who's South Asian and Jamaican as vice president somebody who identifies as black is open and loud about the fact that she is a black woman. She's born a black woman. She would die a black woman. She said that <laughs> on the breakfast club um, during the primary. And there, are, you know, I don't think that it has manifested as overtly as maybe we would have even assumed at this point, but we're only six months in. Um, and I want us to be, I want us to have an audience that's like, Ooh, I heard this on signal boost. That's massage noir. When they're watching TV and there's a segment about Kamala Harris or some Republican is talking <sighs> negatively about Kamala Harris, I want us to know what to look for. So can, yeah. can you speak to some of the ways in which Massage Noir shows up as it relates to the vice president or will show up? Yes. Yes. And I think we can start even before she was vice president. Right. I mean, there was the initial uh, conversation about Joe and the Ho running. I mean, this attention to her mm-hmm. um, past sexual history, this innuendo that she slept her way to the top, all of that is still in the background, even as she's vice president. Uh, and that definitely affected uh, the conversations before she was even on the ticket. And then once she was on the ticket, that being a message that Still circulated. So what we see now uh, in terms of how people are viewing her, it's the language that um, she's cold or that she's angry. Um, people really paying attention to her countenance, paying attention to what she's wearing. All of these things that people generally don't do when it's another woman in power. And we can see even how she was treated versus how Hillary Clinton was treated. You know, Hillary is a bitch to some people, but then um, it is Kamala Harris who is a hoe. And so that differentiation has everything to do with the kinds of things that we write on to black Mm -hmm. women's bodies about sexuality uh, and that we don't think about that are there even whether they're said or not, they totally um, permeate our understanding of what it is that she's saying and how she's viewed. And, you know, keeps us from paying attention to some of the real critiques and um, important critiques we might have 
about uh, this administration, that we get lost in um, really trite conversations that don't have anything to do with the actual policy implications or um, the political positions that she and Biden are, are pushing. And so I think that's another another way that misogynoir um, operates. It keeps us from paying attention to the actual legitimate concerns we might have about, you know, a very moderate um, democratic administration. And when you see things like that, do you see the solution as pushing back on that? Like, do you do you advise people to engage with critics who are operating from a place of bad faith misogynoir or or do you see the solution as a creation of larger spaces to celebrate black women that will eventually drown them out? Like, do, do you do you favor us going into digital combat with these folks or do you think it's more about creating spaces where they, those people simply can't thrive? Right. I mean, I think it's as always a both and it's never an either or with me. Um, and I think that is also the beauty of feminism that we can do both and you can make decisions about whether you want to be the person who is doing both. Uh, as for me personally, I am not interested in going into digital combat with any of these people. That is not um, good for my mental health or for my um, day to day, but there are some people who find that, uh, work rather invigorating and can do it for a while and then maybe tap out and do something else. I I am really for people engaging on multiple levels and um, also understanding that how you engage today might not be how you engage tomorrow. That there are multiple opportunities to challenge some of these representations. And for me, I definitely feel as an educator, part of my role is teaching the future platform designers, people who are in computer engineering, uh, the STEM fields, and, and beyond. Uh, I'm also really interested in health and medicine, uh, teaching people who understand themselves to be going into health careers, uh, that misogynoir exists in all of these different aspects, all of their future professions and trying to get them the tools that they need to challenge it and think about uh, what they're learning uh, through their textbooks, etc., differently so that they can recognize misogynoir when it's there. It's important. The book is Misogynoir Transformed, Black Women's Digital Resistance. Dr. Moya Bailey, thank you for uh, your work and your language and, and joining us this morning. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Signal Boost podcast. We'll be back tomorrow with more news.